Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Invite your attention to the New Testament book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 is our text this morning. The title of the message, Hearts on Heaven. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. May the Lord add his blessing, the reading and hearing of his word. Now, you'll know that Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, which is a city in modern-day Turkey. And his primary purpose in writing is to correct some heretical teaching that was threatening the unity and the purity of that congregation. And though the specifics of that heresy are unclear from the letter, what is clear is that it involves an attack on the supremacy and the sufficiency of the finished work of Christ for salvation. They were teaching that Christ's blood was not enough to save, that to that you had to add works. And like many of Paul's epistles, the letter is divided into theological argument in the first portion, which segues into practical application. Now we see that pattern in almost all of Paul's letters. The book of Ephesians probably comes to your mind. It's so equally divided into halves. The first three chapters are deeply theological. Talks about great soteriological truths like predestination and election, how we're united with Christ and raised to be seated with Him in heavenly places. And then beginning in chapter 4, it changes to relationships, interhuman relationships. It talks about how any two Christians are to relate to one another. And then he gets very specific about husbands and wives who are Christians, how they ought to relate to one another. And then Christians to their children and employers and employee relationships. Well, our text today, Colossians 3, 1 through 4, is really a transition portion of the book of Colossians that takes from the first half theological truth and then makes application in the second half about everyday living. And that's important because the foundation for practical righteousness is sound theology. And what I mean by that, if we try to pursue practical righteousness, that is holy living, without a theological framework, what we end up with is pharisaicalism and legalism. And we want to avoid that as well. So again, the title of the message, Hearts on Heaven, taken from verse 2 here in chapter 3, which says in the King James Version, set your affections on the things above. Your heart, what you love, ought to be in heaven. Now, I had a significant birthday a few months ago. One of those birthdays that causes one to be reflective about the past and very urgent about the future. Maybe it was that birthday, or maybe it's the fact that uh, I have preached the funeral services of about 600 friends of mine in the last 20 years. Maybe a combination of factors have contributed to the fact that in recent months and years, I have been thinking about heaven a lot, so much so that I wrote four sermons about it, that if you'll be here through these next few weeks, you'll hear. But in preparation for that series, of course, I study what the scriptures have to say about heaven. I've read a number of books about heaven from Christian authors. And I've also read with interest what people inside and outside of the church believe about heaven. 
Did you know that according to Pew Research, who does surveys about such things, they believe that 72% of all Americans believe in the existence of a literal heaven. Now, only 52% of them believe in a literal hell. And almost all of those 72% that say they believe in heaven believe they're going there. 85% of evangelicals believe in heaven and 95% of Mormons believe in a little heaven. So we have common ground, it seems, with those who are, we are seeking to evangelize both here and in Utah. And the disparity is not over whether heaven exists, but whether what heaven is like. Who will go there? What will we do there? And where is it? And those are the questions that I want to clarify from the Bible over the next three Sundays. The people of heaven, who goes there? The place of heaven, where is it? What, what is it like? And the activity of heaven, what will we do when we get there? Because the answer to those three questions reveal a lot of misunderstanding in our culture and maybe even our church. For example, if you ask the person on the street right here in Keller, who goes to heaven? The answer you're likely to get is good people. Well, that's a very subjective thing, isn't it? Who's good and who's not? It usually is myself and everyone better than me. Um, where is heaven? Well, a lot of people say, well, it's not anywhere. It's just an ideal. It's a state of mind. And if you ask them, what are we going to do in heaven? That's where it really gets fun. I think most people believe, even in the church, that what we're going to do in heaven is what we like to do here, only without consequences. How many times have I gotten up to preach a funeral message after a friend of the family has given a eulogy in which they said, oh, Bob is playing 36 holes of golf every day. And I get up and say, no, he's not. <laughs> Our Muslim friends believe if they are a faithful Muslim, they will be rewarded with 50 virgins in heaven so that they can feel, fulfill their sexual lust without consequence. When I was in Utah last week, I heard about a Mexican buffet that was, serves 24 hours a day. Maybe that's what my view of heaven would be like. I don't know. <laughs> but heaven is not anything like this world. That's the point. Well, the truth is none of those three questions is what I want to talk about today. You have to come back next week. Rather, today I want to encourage all of us as believers to live our lives every day in the light of the reality and knowledge that this world is not our home. Rather, our citizenship is in heaven. In short, I want my heart and those of every believer I know to be on heaven every day of the week. So let's walk through these four verses, and I want to make three points from them. Number one, the identity of the heaven bound. Secondly, the imperatives of the saints. And third, the impending destiny of the elect. Look at verse 1, the identity of the heaven bound. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ. So that tells us he's referring to something he's already said. And he uses the phrase in our English Bibles, if then. Now, in today's vernacular, if I use the phrase if then, that cast doubt in your mind. That is the possibility of maybe this isn't true. But if it is true, then this applies to you. That's not at all what Paul had in mind in the original Greek construction. What it really says is because then, since then you have been raised with Christ, now your life ought to be different. He's referring here to what he's been referring to in the previous two chapters, and that is the theological concept of a believer's union with Jesus. Now, speaking here of the identity of those who are going to heaven. And what I mean is everyone in the culture seems to be searching for an identity. 
That is, they want to be connected to something greater than themselves. If you don't believe this, do a little experiment on your way home. Slow down within 100 yards of the next red light and get behind an SUV. And I can promise you almost with certainty, by the time the tight light turns green again, you're going to read on their back windshield the thing they want to identify with. It's usually their children's sports activities or their achievements in school or maybe where they like to go on vacation. But almost everyone identifies with something. And, and that's true um, across the board, regardless of age. While you're sitting there at the light, there's probably going to be uh, a middle-aged man pull up next to you in a long beard and sleeveless shirt and a leather jacket and rev his Harley Davidson to let you know he identifies with his motorcycle. And you're probably going to pass a church or two that identifies with Western heritage or some other component of society. And I'm not saying any of those things are sinful. I'm just saying, according to the Bible, the only thing a Christian needs to be identified with to make him who he is is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we have other things in our lives, but as Paul says, Christ is our life. If you drive a motorcycle, that's not your life. If you go to a certain, you like a certain brand of music, that's not your life. Christ is our life. That is our identity because we are heaven bound. Now, what do we mean about being united with Christ? This is a theological concept that's mysterious. In fact, theologians call it the mystical union. But you know what it is when you hear it. John 15, for example, Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit already. You who are clean because of the word, because I've spoken it to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit in itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And so Jesus uses a horticultural terminology. He says, your life ought to be so intertwined with me that the world can't tell where you end and I began. 1 Corinthians 6, 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Galatians 2, 20. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You see, we're so united with Christ, our life is over. Before we knew Christ and now that we're born again, we are raised to live for him every day. Now, since last August, our church has been studying verse by verse through the great book of Romans. And through that study, I have, been, I have become convinced that the most important theme or one of the most important New Testament themes is the believer's union with Christ. And there are a number of reasons for that, but primarily because it seems like all of Romans, and I think indeed all the New Testament, builds to one verse, Romans 8 verse 1, which says... That therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the great mountaintop of the New Testament. Because of what Christ has done, we don't have to fear death or dying. And we can look forward with a great anticipation to heaven. Through faith we share in the death, burial, resurrection and eventual glory of Christ. And Paul says here in chapter 2 in Colossians, if you'll cast your eyes up there to verse 12... Every time we get together for a believer's baptism, it's a picture of that theological truth. He says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And so when we have a baptism here, we hear the testimony that one of the pastors says, 
by, by virtue of what the Lord says and the promises of his scripture, I baptize you, my brother or sister, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what do they say next? Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. It's an illustration of this theological truth of our union with Christ. Now, when we say we are buried with Christ or hidden with Christ, that's not to say that when we become a Christian or when we die and go to heaven, we lose our individual identities. That's what the Eastern religions teach, Hinduism and Buddhism, that the highest level of religion in Eastern religions is to go out of individual existence and become what? One with the universe. That we just become part of this amorphous blob called life. That's not what the Bible teaches about heaven. The Bible says in heaven we'll know as we're known. You will recognize and know your loved ones in heaven and they will recognize and know you. Our position in Christ means that our salvation is as secure as Christ's position in the Trinity. We have this in our doctrinal statement, but do we live it? I was in a room this week in Southern California with 10,000 Southern Baptists, probably two-thirds of them Baptist preachers. And if I had gone to the microphone and said, brothers, do we believe in the security of the believer? They would have jumped to their feet and applauded. Baptists believe in that, but why? It's because of the union we have with Christ. So long as God the Father and God the Spirit are happy and in agreement with God the Son, we are in Christ and therefore we are secure. What can separate us from the love of God? Absolutely nothing is the answer. Now, the question then becomes, if we believe that heaven is real and we know it's true, how then should we live? Really another way of saying it in today's vernacular is so what? Great, everybody believes in heaven almost in our culture, but does it change our life? Well, it should. For the believer, we are commanded to do certain things because of heaven's existence. And that's our second point, the imperatives for the saints. An imperative is a command. He says, because of this, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things of the earth. So first imperative, seek the things above. What does it mean to seek something? It means to pursue it, to go after it with a great effort and intensity, to invest your life in it. So if we're to seek the things above, what does he mean by that? The things of heaven. Now I will give you that the word heaven is not in these four verses, although the sermon series is about heaven. But heaven is implied here when he says the things above. How do I know? Well, I don't remember a lot about the Hebrew classes I took in seminary over 20 years ago. I remember one of two things. I remember on the first day of class, our Hebrew professor said that the word for heaven in Hebrew is shemayim, and it's always plural. If you translate the Hebrew word for heaven correctly, it will always have an S on the end of it, heavens, because you never see it in the singular in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, where Colossians is, we know why. Because the Apostle Paul refers to the first heaven and the second heaven, and we know of the third heaven. The first heaven is the atmosphere. It's the air we breathe. It's where the birds fly about and planes take off and land. Uh, the second heaven is what we would refer to as outer space. It's where the stars and planet are. And the third heaven is where Jesus is, where we long to be one day. Um, it's a total different existence than the first and second heaven and anything on earth. So when... 
Paul instructs us to set our mind and to seek the things above, he's doing it as a study in contrast. And I appreciate that because I think very simply, as you know, and contrasting things helps me. And so I just wrote down several contrasting phrases that help me to understand what Paul's talking about here when he talks about the things above. He's talking about the things of God as opposed to the things of man. He's talking about those things which are eternal in their essence as opposed to those things which are temporary. He's talking about the things that are spiritual as opposed to things that are carnal or fleshly. And so the third heaven which he speaks of here is where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now why would he go to such effort to tell us the posture of Jesus in heaven? He just could say in heaven where Jesus is, period. But he says he's seated. Why is it important that Jesus is seated? I think for several reasons. Number one, he's speaking here of the completion of Christ's mission. You remember on the cross, what's one of the final things Jesus said before he gave up his spirit? He said, it is what? Finished. And by sitting down, he is saying, I've done everything that the Father gave me to do. But he also speaks here of his priestly function and advocacy for believers. Remember, he's ever making intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. But in Hebrews, it tells us that having made purification for sins, that is on the cross, he sat down. It never has to be repeated. That's why God the Father tore the veil in the temple from the top to the bottom. We don't need any more sacrifices. We don't need any more priestly systems. It also speaks, I think, of his royal authority. He says he's at the right hand of the Father where he's seated. The right hand of a king is a position of royalty and power and authority. And, and it speaks ultimately of his deity, that he's co-equal with the Father. He's not just a man or a prophet. He is God in the flesh. Well, that's the first imperative. And the second one is like it. It's not only should we seek the things above, but we should set our mind on the things above. Now, at first glance, there's not a great deal of difference between seeking and setting our mind. I think there's a nuance of, of difference. To seek something speaks of activity. We're moving, we're doing something. To set our minds is more passive. It means to dwell upon, to think upon, to meditate upon. Um, Drew Mary, a pastor, writes this about the difference. He says, quote, in short, to seek the things above is to live in the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. To live as he lived, to live with a heavenly vision of the glory to come and to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, end quote. Now, when we're talking about setting our minds, it's what we think about. In, in Psalm chapter 1, the psalmist divides all of humanity into two groups, what he calls the righteous and the wicked. And the primary difference between the righteous and the wicked is what they dwell upon. The wicked dwell upon how to sin. And he says the righteous man's not like that. He meditates on what? The law, the word, day and night. What we're really talking about here is the fruit of progressive sanctification. We talk about sanctification here a lot. It's becoming more like Jesus every day, making progress in throwing off the sin of this world and putting on practical righteousness. But when we talk about progressive sanctification, something we should remember, the more we become like Christ, the less attractive the things of this world will be 
and the more attractive heaven will be. Now, the opposite of that is true. The more we allow the world to influence us, and the more we become like the world, the less attractive the things of heaven will be. And I think there's some very tangible evidence that the evangelical church writ large, particularly those of us living in the Western Hemisphere, have lost some of our affection for heaven. And what do I mean by that? Let me ask you a few questions. When is the last time you heard a new Christian song about heaven? When's the last time you heard a sermon about heaven outside of today? When's the last time over coffee you and your friend talked about heaven? Now I'm old enough to remember the days when we used to sing about heaven a lot in country churches. In fact, about almost all of our songs were about heaven because they were written a hundred years earlier. A lot of the great spirituals from the South were written by people who were in slavery and they sung a lot about heaven. And so I think you put all that together. I think one of the reasons our hearts and minds are not set on heaven the way they should be is that we really love it here, right? It's pretty comfortable in this room right now. It's 72 degrees. You ladies say it's 61, but it's 72. (laughs) And, And if the temperature wherever we are is two degrees off in either direction, we complain and And if our food is two degrees too hot or too cold, we complain. And the truth is, we're soft. We're spoiled. And we don't think about heaven because we're invested too heavily in this life. Sometimes the Lord has to send hard times to get our minds and hearts off the here and now and where he wants them to be in heaven where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Well, those are the imperatives Thirdly, let's look at the impending destiny of the elect. Verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I think one of the problems we have in our churches is compartmentalization of the Christian life. I call it ice tray Christianity. If you're under 30, you won't understand this because ice comes from that machine at the quick stop, I know. But, but there is a generation here who remembers after the evening meal where you would fill up the ice trays and you'd put them in the freezer and in the morning, voila, you had ice cubes. But you remember how ice tray works. It's divided into eight or 12 compartments and the water is not touching in any of the compartments. And when it freezes, when you break it open, now you have individual ice cubes. And I think that's how a lot of Christians live their lives. They have individual cells of their life and they don't want any of them to intermingle. So they have a career cell. You go to work every day or you have a business if you're an entrepreneur and your Christian life really doesn't inform the way you do business. Business is business, as we say. And then you come home from 10 or 12 hours at work and you feel obligated dads on Father's Day to play ball with your kids so that they know who you are when they grow up. And then you have your family cell. And then maybe on Friday, if you get a couple hours off, you go to the golf course and you have your recreation life and your friends you like to do those things with. And and then on Sunday, you show up at church, maybe even to Sunday school, and you have your Sunday friends and you have your Sunday cell and your Christian part of your life. And yet Paul says here, what God wants is this. He said, 
when Christ, who is your life, appears. That's a big difference, isn't it? Than having Christ being a small part of your life and having being your life. I think what he means is, if you are a Christian businessman or woman, you ought to be a Christian businessman or woman, right? And if you are a dad or a mom, you ought to be a Christian dad or mom. And if you like to have recreation, when you do that, the Lord Jesus' name ought to be on your lips and in your heart. Let Christ be your identity. Let him be your life. He says, and when he who is your life appears, I take that to mean at his second coming, visibly and literally, when he comes to judge, then you will appear with him in glory. There's that word again, glory. He's going back to that same theological theme, union with Christ. Remember he says, we have died with Christ, we're crucified with Christ, we've been buried with Christ, we're raised with Christ, and in the future we will be glorified with Christ. And you know in Romans chapter 8, that great golden chain of redemption, he doesn't even use a future tense, he uses a present tense. He says, we were foreknown in him before the foundation of the world, we were predestined by him that we should walk in holiness, we were called out of spiritual death into spiritual life and the effectual calling. God the Father hit the gavel of history and said not guilty. He justified us and Paul says he glorified us. But we live in that great tension between the already and the not yet, don't we? There is a sense in the hearts and minds of every born again believer, the Lord Jesus is on the throne. We recognize his rule and reign in our life. But then we look around at the culture and we say, we're in the minority, and we are. That won't always be the case, according to Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, one day, every knee will bow of things in heaven. That's the angelic beings. On things of earth, that's all human beings. And even things under the earth, the demonic realm, will bow their knee and confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He will rule and reign all of creation. The government will indeed be on his shoulders. And when I think of that, I think of what John wrote in the book of Revelation. You remember John was transported supernaturally into the very throne room of heaven. He saw some amazing things. He saw the angelic beings. He saw the elders. He saw God the Father and his holy, glorious throne. And the Father was holding a scroll that scroll I take to be the title deed of the universe. You know important legal documents back then were written on scrolls and they were rolled up and candle wax was poured over the edges and the magistrate would seal that document with his signet ring and if someone opened that document who was not entitled to, there's real problems. And so as God the Father held the title deed to the universe, a question went out throughout heaven in John's hearing is anyone worthy? Who is worthy to open this seal? Who is worthy to rule the universe? And for a period of time which to John must have seemed like an eternity, there was silence in heaven. You remember what John began to do? He began to weep because he understood the implication 
that if no one was worthy to rule the universe that God had created, then Satan had won. He would be the God of this world. But then John's angelic host, my version, elbowed him in the ribs and said, be quiet. Hush up. Look over there. And he pointed John in the direction of what John said looked like a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And that's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is worthy to take the title deed. He is worthy to break the seal. He is worthy to be King of kings and Lord of lords. Now hear this. The Bible says we will be glorified with him. Not only have we died with Christ, not only are we buried with Christ, not only are we raised with Christ, we will rule and reign with Christ in his glory forever. You say, Pastor, what does it mean that we Christians are going to share the glory of Christ in heaven forever? And when you ask me that, I'm going to look at my watch and say, look at the time. <laughs> because I don't know. I really don't. I have been studying for months about heaven, and I don't have a clear answer on what it means that we're going to share in the glory of Christ in fact, I'm going to give you the summary right now of everything I have learned about heaven. You're going to say, I don't need to come the next three weeks, but you're wrong. You do. Here, here's what the Bible teaches about heaven. We're not given great detail about it. Probably most of you have wished to know more about where your loved ones are, and I'm with you on that. Here's what I'm convinced of from Scripture. Whatever heaven is like, it's infinitely better than anything here. And that's why we don't have to worry as a believer, about death or dying. That's why we don't have to fear. Because heaven is where Jesus is. And let me get real personal. Heaven's not about doing your favorite activity on earth without consequence. It's not about fulfilling your earthly d d lust in heaven because you won't have any. It's not about eating your favorite food without worrying about gaining weight. Heaven is heaven... Because that's where Jesus is. Our Savior. The one who died for us. And heaven is going to be about glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever. Now I, I'm assuming almost everyone here, if not everybody, believes in the existence of heaven. So I'm going to skip ahead, if it's okay, to how can we make application? How can we practically seek the things above and set our affection on heaven? Uh, number one, I think we need to meditate on the scriptures about all the promises of God. Because all the promises of God find their fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. Like Psalm 1 says, meditate upon God's word dead and, day and night until you develop a Christian worldview. Then your heart will be on heaven, I promise but then secondly, have a realistic view of this world. It's like the song we sang earlier, the earth will soon dissolve like snow. That's not poetry. That's reality. That's what 2 Peter 3.10 says. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. The heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. The earth also, the work shall be burned up the heavens being on fire and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. So if we believe that, 
that everything on this earth, including our bank accounts and our boats and our houses, are going to one day be burned up. Why in the world? Or I should say, why in heaven <laughs> would we be satisfied with investing our lives in the glass baubles of this life? And that's all they are at the end of the day. Glass baubles that ultimately will prove to be worthless. Instead, invest in heavenly things. That's what the Bible means when it says lay up treasure in heaven. Those things that can't be stolen by thieves or rust or inflation. Invest in the things of God. And then finally, think, sing, and speak of heaven more often. This same chapter 3 of Colossians says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing about heaven. Hold your pastor's feet to the fire that he needs to preach more about heaven. And then talk about heaven. Try an experiment this week. When you're at the coffee shop and the conversation turns to the weather as it certainly will. See if you can turn the conversation heavenward and talk to your friend who's a Christian about where you're going to spend eternity. And if the friend is not a Christian, use it as an evangelistic opportunity to say, I want you to be in heaven where I'm going to spend eternity. And then I think what will happen when we do those three things, we'll find that rather in this world that's going to be burned up one day, our thoughts and our mind and our affections, our hearts will be on heaven more and more. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for Jesus who lived a perfect life, came down from heaven, took on a human body, lived and lived a perfect life and died in our place on the cross, was resurrected and after 40 days ascended back into heaven where he is seated at your right hand. And Father, we long to be there and will be there very soon. But until then, Father, help us to, to live like heaven is our home because it is. We're just passing through this life. It's just temporary. So short compared to eternity is our lifespan. And yet, Father, sometimes we get um, invested too deeply into this world and, and we're traumatized when our 401k takes a dip or the weather doesn't suit us. Father, I'm reminded of Christians in the Bible and throughout history who have suffered and lost everything for the sake of Christ. And they could do that because like Christ in Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he went to the cross. We know everything here is temporary. It's one day going to burn up and go away and be replaced by something new and better. So Lord, help us when we catch ourselves too invested in the here and now to turn our affections, our hearts, our mind towards heaven through the things we read about in scripture, the things we sing about in church, and the things that we talk about with one another. Lord, help us, every one of us, to have our heart on heaven every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.